One last time, we turn to Matthew chapter 2, 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least of the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly or exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Father, now we have been for the last three weeks looking at this unique section of the Word of God in which Matthew takes our minds to that great prophecy of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 and builds logic and evidence concerning the presentation of Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Jews' Messiah and our Savior. Thank you for the unique way in which the Spirit prompted the pen of Matthew and help us this morning as we deal with these things before thy throne and before the congregation. Again, we pray for thy glory. Again, we pray for this congregation's good. And now we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. It was indeed a lunch and supper sermon. Last week I referenced that I've been enjoying the commentary of the great reformer Martin Luther on this section of the book of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, in which Matthew is presenting to us Jesus as the Christ. Uh, this is our third and final consideration of uh, this particular section of the Word of God. And uh, I want to assure you this morning that though we've given it a little bit of an extended treatment, by no means have we exhausted what we could uh, see together and savor together and show uh, to each other in this particular section of the Word of God. Uh, if you add up all of the points, and you may have looked at the bulletin outline this morning and realized I got a lot of them, eight points, that's a long sermon, eight points. Uh, most sermons are three, some have five, but eight, boy, that's a lot. 
but nonetheless, I wanted to just point out the fact that uh, my sermons uh, are, are nothing like Luther's sermon. Luther's sermon did not have three points in a poem, neither did he have an outline of seven or eight. Luther's sermon preached on the January date of Epiphany in 1522 had, ready, 344 preaching points. It takes about 30 minutes just to read it. And so I would suggest that it probably would take about an hour and a half to preach it. Nonetheless, when I say it had to be a lunch and supper sermon, I'm telling you, you better be in both if you're going to hear a sermon with 344 points. So you'll be glad to know that my sermon today does not have 344 points, just eight. And really, out of the eight, I'm only preaching three. So you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Go ahead and smile. It won't break your face today. It's a gloomy day, I know, but you don't have to look like that. You don't have to look like that. You don't have to look like that. Do they, Bill? They don't have to. They don't have to. You kind of sang like that, but you don't have to look like that. Okay, I'm meddling, I confess. This morning, we want to widen the lens of our consideration as we return to the text one last time before moving on. We want to gather together in this outline of eight, everything preached thus far in review of 11 Sundays so far in the book of Matthew. We preach three additional truths today in application. The overview outline of eight evidences concerning Christ is a reminder to you of what Matthew is doing. Matthew is building up evidences, evidences that all lead in the same direction, and that is to the correct identity of Jesus as the Christ, and evidences that add up to an explanation as to why there is indeed a delay in the kingdom promise of the Old Testament prophets. In the first Sunday in June, we began our study concerning Matthew's presentation of messianic evidence through that selective genealogy leading up to Jesus, who is called the Christ, verse 16 of chapter 1. Matthew 1, 1 to 17's genealogy was followed by the record of Genesis, or gestation of the God-man, from the perspective of Joseph. Chapter 1 ends with reference to the grand fulfillment of Isaiah's Emmanuel prophecy in the miraculous birth of Jesus. Most recently, we identified the Old Testament prophecy around which Matthew 2 opens from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 2 as recorded in verse 6. Last week, we brought to bear the evidence of Gentile wise men worshiping the Jewish baby Christ. In overview, we have covered the Christological genealogy, the Christological gestation, the Christological grandeur, and told something of those Gentile worshipers. Now today we pick up with number five and the gravity of the case of Christ in relationship to wicked Herod. King Herod was an instrument of persecution and an illustration of the serious opposition to the Lord's Christ by Satan, by the world, and by our own sinful flesh over all the days of earthly sojourn from the time of Adam's fall 
until the second coming. What did I just say? I just said that Herod uniquely illustrates Satan. Herod uniquely illustrates the posture of the world. I said that Herod uniquely illustrates the posture of my own soul apart from God and yours. That's an interesting thought to pursue. News of the birth of Jesus the Christ troubled Herod, as seen in verse 3. We have previously identified Herod's expression of desire to come and worship the born king of the Jews when found, verse 8, at deceptive and, of course, destructive. In this, Herod is yet another tool, or we might rightly say fool, in the long line of men under satanic influence that work in opposition to the saving purpose of God in Christ. Herod's envy and cunning is reflective of the fallen archangel and proves to be an instrument of Satan's hand at the time of the Lord's birth. Herod is not only an instrument of evil and wickedness, but Herod is an illustration of the ongoing deception and destruction promoted by the adversary of the soul against God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You are a people opposed. I am a preacher opposed. And while we can be disturbed by too much emphasis in that realm, you and I cannot afford to live a day without the thought that you and I have active opposition to who we are in Jesus Christ every single day. Herod is a unique physical manifestation of the currency of satanic activity in that first century setting. He is an instrument of evil. Herod is an instrument of evil. And he is illustrative of the work of the great adversary of our souls. That adversary ultimately being against God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Herod is likewise a worldly instrument and illustrative of the opposition to God that flows easily through the lives of sinful people as they worship money, sex, and power. If you do a careful analysis of Genesis chapter 3, you will see that the adversary of the soul first appealed to Eve on the spirit realm, and then on the realm of her soul, and then on the realm of her body. Adam and Eve made a body decision to satisfy the God of their belly, and as a result of that, the spirit of them, uh, both God, uh, died and only, only because of God's grace were they able to restore and remain in fellowship with God thereafter. Historically, Herod came to power as a part of the judgment of God upon his sinful people, Israel. In truth, the Jewish people hated Herod, and yet they made out quite well under him because of love for their own sins. When there was news of a baby born to be king of the Jews, it troubled Herod, yes. And previously we said when Herod was troubled, he troubled those under him. Therefore, Jerusalem was troubled. 
But the citizens of Jerusalem were not just troubled because of Herod. They were troubled because people like it the way it is. People like it the way it is. People like it the way it is. Dogs return to their vomit. People like it the way it is. People like it the way it is. And why, if you ask any Jew of that first century uh, uh, capital city, if they liked Herod, they say, you got to be kidding, we hate that guy. And they literally did hate him. And yet they made out quite well under him because of the love of their own sins. Herod then is not only illustrative of the ongoing elements of satanic activity in the world as we know it, but Herod is, of course, illustrative of the world at large that opposes all the things of God. Right from the very fall of Adam and Eve when they chose the God of the belly until this present hour and until the return of Christ, the world will always, always, always speak and emphasize and direct this contrary to the Spirit, contrary to the Word of God. Luther says this, human works and doctrines all times yield much revenue and carnal gain, while the doctrine of God and the work of Christ bring the cross, poverty, ignominy, and all kinds of calamity, which, listen carefully, the holiness of Herod cannot endure. The holiness of Herod? Yeah, the holiness of Herod. Think about the holiness of Herod. You'd be quickly to say with me, there isn't any. <laughs> but Herod, proposing himself to be holy, says to the wise men, as soon as you find out where he is, come and tell me that I may also come and worship him. Would Herod want to come? Yes. Would Herod want to worship? No. What did Herod want to do? Kill him. And yet, Herod's brand of holiness in this whole world works. Advertised that at the First Baptist Church this Sunday, we're going to have women dancers on the platform, uh, scantily clad. I'll bet you we have more people than we do this morning. You might decide not to come. I wish you would. <laughs> but nonetheless, the crowd would be bigger. There is indeed something healthy about being reminded that I am a preacher opposed. You are a people opposed. Opposed by the adversary of the soul? Yes. And opposed by the world at large outside our doors. It does not work in the world the way that it works in the things of God. Remember? And it is so sad that in our day the church has become enamored with the ways of the world as if somehow the church would prosper if we gave ourselves over more to the world's way in which things are done. Luther said, if you want to build a great church in the eyes of men, you must do it man's way, the world's way, the holiness of Herod way, the way of money, sex, and human power. Herod, in this chapter, is seated in decadence and lavish trappings gained by worldly contriving and ladder climbing. Herod looks like a king. 
Jesus doesn't look like a king at all. Herod has the circumstances of a king. Jesus doesn't have the circumstances of a king at all. The true King Christ, Jesus, is in a humble abode. The way of Christ is the way of the cross in the first advent. And interestingly, his people are called to follow him in that way. The problem with the American church is that not that she's too impoverished, but that she's far too rich to need God as God desires to be needed by his people. Poverty is no sign of spirituality, but riches often defer souls away from God. The things of God are put into their neat little categories in our lives, but the idea of loving God with all the heart, with all the mind, with all the soul is somehow lost upon even the people of God in this generation as the God of this world dominates our thinking day in and day out. And then there's the application of my own sinful flesh. My own flesh desires much that is absolutely contrary to the will of God for me right now. My own sinful flesh wars against the indwelling spirit, so says the Bible. My feelings often rage contrary to the spirit's fruit. There is even still a Herod in me and in you as a child of God over which we are to secure the Spirit's power, the very power that brought forth Christ from the tomb to mortify the deeds of our sinful flesh. Herod illustrates my ongoing battle with the flesh. It is most popular today to speak of, uh, of loving Christ while working with the world according to the desires of the sinful flesh. To this kind of Christianity, we must say, God forbid. Herod illustrates the conflict. The conflict between Christ and Satan. The conflict. The conflict between the world and Christ. And Herod illustrates the conflict. The conflict between my own sinful flesh and Christ. You and I are brought again and again by the word of God to the necessity to talk to God and enjoy the blessedness of the empowering of the Holy Spirit that we might live a life of pleasure to God. Otherwise, waste our time and energies on lesser things. Things that are nobler should allure our sight. So often things that are lesser have allured our sight. Quite a thought that Herod illustrates the gravity of conflict between Christ and Satan, Christ and the world, Christ and my own sinful flesh. Number six, I do not want you to miss while we are in this text, the fuller guarantee of God, prophetically associated with Micah 5.2, as quoted at verse 6. Now, we usually cite the prophecy only in regard to the predict uh, prediction 
of Messiah's birthplace. But the context of that prophecy is broader and includes far greater additional matters of glory and divine accomplishment than just the simple noting of the place where Messiah was to be born. I'd like you to turn with me this morning back to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 is where we have the scripture that is referenced. We've said quoted. I'll say quote again, although to the dissatisfaction of some of your minds and hearts, uh, it's not a precise quote. And the difference is quite astounding. Uh, Here's the verse in Micah 5 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. When you compare the uh, text in Micah 5.2 and Matthew 2 and verse 6, you'll see a phenomenal difference in that, the second phrase, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, that would be the opinions of men, as stated by the prophet, Micah 5 2, Judah, Bethlehem Judah, while well, you are nothing on the map, while well, you are like Elto to Grand Rapids, while well, you are a blip and a train stop, if that. Uh, the reality is, out of you, says 5.2 in the prophecy, out of you is going to come uh, he who is ruler uh, unto God in Israel. Uh, Matthew says, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah. Uh, Bethlehem, you're not the little town that people think you are. You're not the little town. Uh, Micah 5.2 prophecy says, you are a little town in the eyes of men. Matthew uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse 6 says, you aren't a little town before God, because God has ordained that from you is going to come his prince. So I'm still calling it a quote, but to the great dissatisfaction of some people, when God quotes his own word, he doesn't always do it word for word. And God is permitted to change it as he desires. Would you agree with that? And there really is no change in understanding. It's just a change in perspective. Micah 5.2, the prophecy is granted on the basis of the perspective of man. And uh, Matthew 2.6 is is rendered on the perspective of God. That's the difference. It's a perspective difference. But it's interesting to note. But in both of the uh, prophecies, the one that is to be born in Bethlehem is, uh, is des- designated as both a ruler and one who is going forth. And that going forth idiom, Hebrew idiom of going forth, has a lot more to do with uh, understanding the, the temperature or the tenure of the text. Uh, in both the prophecy and its fulfillment as stated by Matthew in chapter 2. And that is the Hebrew idiom going forth speaks of a military conquest. It speaks of victory at the hands of a mighty conqueror. The babe of Bethlehem is the mighty conqueror who existed before time began. Scholars associate verse 2 and verse 3a where it says that he will give them up 
until the time, Matthew, I'm sorry, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, he will give them up until the time. Uh, they associate that phrase with the revealing of the Lord's saving work and the delay of God's kingdom on earth, first advent. I remind you again of that which we've said from the beginning, that Matthew has a dual purpose in his gospel, and that is to lay out very clearly for a Jewish audience who is the Jewish Christ, our Lord Jesus, and to answer the question why the kingdom has been delayed. And we read of the answer today in our scripture reading, in that little familiar verse of John chapter 1, where John said, as prompted by the Spirit of God, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, sometimes when I read that verse in John chapter 1, I say, oh, that's too bad, that's too bad, that's too bad that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But then when I remember uh, the truth of the gospel that I have received, I say, wow, is it ever good? Is it ever good? Is it ever good? Is it ever good that he came unto his own, and his own received him not? Because Jesus was rejected, and the kingdom was rejected in the first advent, I have opportunity of salvation from the Lord. I'm included in God's program I'm so glad for God's providence that overrules all things according to his will. The broader prophecy of Micah chapter 5, where I trust that you are still open to in your Bible, includes a lot of promises to Israel that we would associate with the second advent of Jesus Christ, including, verse 3, reunion and restoration. God's shepherding of the Jewish flock on earth, verse 4, and ye shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. That goes directly to John chapter 10 and Jesus' declaration, I am the good shepherd. The promise of Messiah to come, born of Bethlehem, was not only to be the one that would ultimately restore the Jewish nation with a great reunion of the tribes in the coming day, but he would be the shepherd of God's flock. And that's prophesied in verse 4 of Micah chapter 5. And then you have the activity of the promised Prince of Peace, verse 5. And this man shall be the peace. He doesn't just bring peace. He is the peace, says the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 and verse 5. As a result of that, the Jewish nation will be enlivened, verse 7, like a lion. Israel will be like a lion in the earth over all nations, verse 8. And Yahweh, the Lord our God, will be worshipped, not only by his ancient people, but he'll be worshipped with them without competition of idolatry, so says verses 12 to 15. Like most other Old Testament messianic prophecies, the exact time of fulfillment is hidden until reviewed and revealed of the Lord by further revelation. I remind you that part of Matthew's purpose is to identify the Christ and to explain why his coming the first time did not result in kingdom come and those further realities of prophetic utterance that were spoken of 
by Micah. Matthew uniquely says that the part of Matthew, uh, Micah chapter 5, that was fulfilled in the birth of Christ is verse 2. And yet then even verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, all the way through the end of the chapter, which includes ultimately the worship of the true God of heaven and earth and the judgment of all heathen, verse 15, all things we associate with the second coming, that all of those things, even by Matthew's treatment of the prophecy, indicate fulfillment in the first advent. It's a glorious thing to see the broader spectrum of the prophecy. We do not believe that God is a, a, a part and pieces kind of a God. We do not believe that God fulfills a, a little bit and then calls it done. We believe that no word of God can fall to the ground. We believe that no word of God can be rendered void or empty. We believe that every single thing that God has said will happen, will happen. It's only a matter of time. And on that basis, I say to you, as a blood-bought child of God, the best is yet to come. If you think this hour is the best that God has to offer us, you would be sadly mistaken. Because there are glorious things ahead in Christ. Prepare thy soul for the glory to come, not the gloom of the day. Glory to come, not the gloom of the day. Think a little bit with me this morning about the glory to come, not the gloom of the day. Wow. Wow. Yes, Christ was born in Bethlehem. The prophet said he wouldn't be. And yet the great and the majority of the prophetic pronouncement is yet to be fulfilled. And John, the apostle, would have this congregation then begin to pray like they meant it, singing, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, Lord, even so, Lord Jesus, come and accomplish that great work that you have promised. Oh, Lord, we stand in anticipation of thy full promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who we are. That's who we are. That's who we are. That's who we are. I'm skipping number seven because we previously worked with the guidance of that miraculous star called his star in Matthew 2.2. I will just remind you what we said last week briefly, and that is that uh, that star indeed led the wise men to Jerusalem first. In other words, the confrontation with Herod was ordered of the Lord. And then after the confrontation, an interaction with Herod, the wise men came out of the, uh, of the residence of Herod and what was back to lead them but the star. They lost it when they got to Jerusalem. They found it when they left Jerusalem and it led them right to Bethlehem to the very place where was indeed the Christ child. We're skipping over most of the guidance of that miraculous star this morning in order to say something more about those gifts 
presented by the Gentile wise men worshiping the Christ as found back in Matthew chapter 2. Now, I don't know where you are in your Bible. I'm kind of hoping you're still in, in Micah. Uh, but because uh, we're going to go to Isaiah before we go back to Matthew 2. But uh, I want to talk about those gifts. Everyone here knows the gifts presented uh, were in the form of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Much has been made of the three gifts devotionally, and I would cast no doubt upon some notable connections in Scripture. No doubt, gold is often associated with kings and kingdoms. No doubt, in the Bible, frankincense is the spice of Hebrew priests and uniquely a part of prayer and the table of incense under the law. Myrrh is, of course, that fragrant spice of burial. Yet the two certain things that we can say about the gifts as presented uh, are not to be found in those delineations of connections in regards to substance with some kind of devotional truth. The two certain things we can say about the gifts presented by the wise men are, one, they were presented as a singular gift, representative of the wise men's country of origin. The idea in the ancient world was that when you came uh, from your country to another country, that you brought things that were representative of your best from your country. Hence, you'll find places in the Bible where the kings of Israel are told when they meet with the king of Egypt or the king of Syria or some other king, you'll find that they bring the best of the grains and the fruit of the land of Israel uh, as a representation of honor uh, to the king, but representative of the land from which... uh, the individuals or the entourage had come. Again, the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, were presented as a singular gift uh, and uh, representative of the wise men's country of origin. Uh, uh, Scholars actually chase the gifts in order to see places in the Eastern world where those particular commodities are uniquely to be found. And it's quite an interesting read to consider the aspect of some of the input of such a chase. But nonetheless, what we can say for sure is, is that the three items were presented as one gift, a representative gift from the wise men's country of origin. The second thing we can say about the gift is that it was practically placed in use for the young, impoverished family of three, that would very soon thereafter be instructed to take an extended trip uh, to Egypt. Joseph and Mary presented, when they had taken a much shorter little jaunt uh, to the temple for worship, they had presented at worship two turtle doves rather than a lamb in sacrifice. 
at the temple. And the reason why Mary and Joseph would have presented two turtle doves is because under the law, if a person didn't have enough money uh, to purchase a lamb or to own an animal for sacrifice, uh, they could, if impoverished, make their sacrifice of two turtle doves. And Joseph and Mary, Luke records, made their sacrifice in the temple of two turtle doves which tells us that the young couple with their baby uh, were not exactly rolling in grandpa's cash, uh, that they were indeed uh, impoverished, and, uh, and uh, thereby, uh, when honoring the Lord, uh, they honored the Lord with what they had. Uh, and in that case, the sacrifice was to turtle doves. But very soon, uh, the Spirit of God is going to drive them to Egypt, for protection, which in itself is kind of nutty. Haven't you ever thought that? It's kind of nutty that they have to leave and go to Egypt for protection when God is almighty. Could not God have protected the baby Christ right where he was? So why didn't he? Oh, there's so much to be said about that. There's so much for you and I to learn about that. But because of the trip to Egypt coming up, uh, Joseph and Mary are going to have to have some coin. They're going to have to have some bread. They're going to have to have some some, uh, uh, some uh, uh, wherewithal in order to facilitate the aspect of an extended trip uh, back to their ancestral home. And uh, the wise men's gift facilitated that trip. I would personally like it better if the three gifts precisely lined up with the prophetic offices of prophet, priest, and king. That'd be cool. I'd, that'd be a good thing to preach. Uh, you can devotionally see something of the king. You can devotionally see something of priest. Uh, but then uh, Myrrh would bring us to the reality of the Savior, uh, with the New Testament gospel in mind, but the action of the wise men, as recorded in Matthew 2, is but a foretaste, a foretaste of the fuller prophecy that, again, is specified in the Old Testament scriptures. In the same way that Matthew is careful, back in Matthew chapter 2 at verse 6, to quote Micah 5.2 and not 5.3, not 5.4, not 5.5, not 5.6, not 5.7, all the way to 5.15. He quotes nothing but 5.2 because only 5.2 is fulfilled in that moment. In that same way, Matthew gives us this indication of the uh, wise men bringing gifts and presenting them to the Christ. And yet Matthew doesn't say anything about gold is for the king and frankincense is for the priest and myrrh is for the death of Christ. Uh, that would be all the devotional writers that give their mind to such things. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying there aren't connections of which you and I can bless our own gizzards and the gizzards of others uh, if you uh, uh, think and meditate upon such things. I'm just saying there isn't any Bible direct statement of that. But what there is a direct statement of is that these wise men do something 
that is going to be done much the more in the coming day. And so if you're still in Micah, good. If not, don't go there, but go to Isaiah chapter 60. Go to Isaiah chapter 60. And we'll begin by reading 1 to 3. I would just simply remind you that Isaiah is written 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah, under inspiration of God, says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. Did you notice two dark things there? The world is dark, and the people are dark. Now, in this context, you have a Jewish prophet talking about the people. That would be the Jewish people. And so, the Jewish prophet sees a time when light arises upon a dark world, when light arises upon the Jewish people. But... The Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Now we said formerly that the wise men weren't kings. True. This isn't talking about the wise men. This is talking about the kings of the world coming to the Christ in what you and I would call the second advent. I believe that first advent, second advent uh, transfer takes place in verse 2 with the word but. If you're marking your Bible as to references, I would say that Isaiah 61 and 2a is talking about the first advent and then after the word but... The Lord shall arise upon thee, Jewish people, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, Jewish people. And the Gentiles shall come unto thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising, uh, would all be second advent stuff. But just to make it a little more specific, jump down a quick moment to verse 6. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. I'm saying to you that Matthew chapter 2 and verse 12 is a holy hint is a little foretaste of that which the prophet said is sure to come. Matthew does not say that the wise men's gifts were a fulfillment. As Matthew does say that Christ's birth in Bethlehem was a fulfillment. And you say, boy, it's getting off for specific. Yeah, that's the nature of prophecy. And you need to have your head in gear. But more than that, you need to have your heart bent towards God in order to see something of the splendor 
in which the Lord has laid it all out before us. It's all been laid out before us. It's all laid out before us. And there is holy hint after holy hint after holy hint. And I would argue this morning as the hour is gone that my opportunity and your opportunity is exactly the opportunity of the wise men. And that is to do in anticipation of the greater day in giving our hearts and minds to worship Jesus. You and I today have a great opportunity and a choice before God to do what the whole world will do in the coming day. And that is worship. The Lord Jesus. Father, gladly, happily, enthusiastically, we would worship your Son, our Savior, and pray that you would stir our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, afresh and anew, that bravery and courage, that consistency and stability would be found in us as we walk with you in the light of your word and in the power of thy blessed spirit. Thank you for the sure word of God that we have in our hands. Use it to encourage our souls and to lift our spirits according to thy plan and thy will today. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.